Good morning, church. Uh, hope you all are well. Today we are going to continue on in our series, Desperately Seeking Jesus, where we dive into the lives and the stories of people in the Bible who were desperate. They were desperately seeking something that could ultimately only be found in Jesus. Now, last week, Pastor Calvin began our character study by looking at the bleeding woman in Luke chapter 8, who had a desperate and imperfect faith that led her to experience the scandalous love of God and find healing in Christ. And today we're going to continue on with the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, who was also desperately seeking something. Now, remember, the hope of the series is that we would become a people and become a church that desperately seeks Jesus with all of our hearts, souls, and minds. And so each week we invite you to look at these people in the Bible and ask yourselves, you know, how you might relate to these stories. How, how do you see yourself here? And in doing so, ultimately wrestle with the question, are you desperately seeking Jesus? As you take a look at your life, the things you do, the things you think about, how you spend your time, your money, your faith and relationship with God, are you desperately seeking Jesus? Does the evidence of your life point to that reality? If your answer is yes, then great. I am genuinely overjoyed for you. And I, and I encourage you, I spur you on to keep on going, keep the fire, keep on following after him. But if your answer is no, that's okay. Let's talk about it. That's, that's why we're here today. That's why we're in this series together. And what better place it is to struggle and learn and wrestle together with other people who are imperfectly trying our best to follow Jesus too. You see, the thing is, oftentimes we know in our heads that Jesus is worth desperately seeking after. We know that he is better than anything else in this world. We learn about it every Sunday. Intellectually, we get it. And yet in the day-to-day, in the practical, when we go back to our regular lives from Monday to Saturday, it's just not the case, right? So what's going on there? Why the disconnect? What keeps us from desperately seeking Jesus? That's the question we're going to try and answer today. Now, the story of the rich young ruler uh, says something about this, and it's probably pretty familiar to many of you. It's a well-known passage that's been preached upon many, many times, I'm sure. But it's one of incredible insight and wisdom that can be of help to us in answering this question. It's a story that's included in all three of the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this account recorded uh, with different details here and there that are emphasized. And so, for example, we know from Mark 10 that this man was rich. It says he had great wealth. In Matthew 19, we learn that he was young. Um, In Luke 18, we learn that he was a ruler. Now they say that he was probably a Jewish ruler from a local synagogue. And so you put all these things together, all these details together, that's where we get the title Rich Young Ruler. Now at the time of this story, Jesus is setting out on a journey. And he's in the last days of his ministry. He's, he's headed to Jerusalem on the way to his eventual death and resurrection. And along the way, this rich young ruler approaches him. 
earnestly with a question. So would you turn your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17, and we're going to read the scripture for today. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This is a story about a man who was desperately seeking life, eternal life. Like we mentioned earlier, he was rich, he was young, he was a religious ruler of some sort. I mean, he had accomplished much in his life at a very young age. He was well-respected, well-established, successful, wealthy, prominent. He had authority and influence. This was a guy who had made it in life. And yet still, even with all of those accomplishments, something was missing. The text says he, he ran. I mean, get this, the, the man of high standing and great authority and all this ac- accomplishment, and, and he ran to Jesus. He ran and knelt before him, bowing down in a posture of deep respect and humility and desperation. Right? We see that he comes urgently and eagerly and sincerely. As a religious leader, we can imply that he probably knew the scriptures very well. He knew the laws very well. He was aware of the customs and the traditions and the history. He was obedient to the commands. I mean, he seemingly did all the things right. And yet there's still something deep within his heart that makes him ask this question, something deep inside that fears that there's something missing. That though he has achieved much financially, religiously, and socially, there is something he has not done to secure his eternity. And so he approaches Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now Jesus says something peculiar in verse 18. He actually answers the question with another question, which is typical of Jesus in the Gospels. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? Why would Jesus say that? Right? You might be thinking, why, well, why is that a problem? A good teacher? Yeah, of course, Jesus was a good teacher. It sounds like a compliment. It sounds like he was just trying to address him respectfully. Right? What's the problem? Is Jesus denying his own divinity? Is he saying, oh no, I'm not good, only God is good? No, I don't think so at all. See, the thing is, is that Jesus knew that this man did not know who he was. 
This man did not know that he was speaking to God himself, the word made flesh. No, he simply thought that Jesus was maybe a solid teacher, a pretty good, pretty average guy. Why do you call me good? What Jesus is addressing is that this man uses the word good very casually, very loosely. He's calling out his superficial and shallow understanding of what good really means. You see, in in this man's world, many things were good. He probably considered himself to be a good person. Right? And we do this all the time, too. I mean, we throw this word around like it's no big deal. Anything can be good in this world. You're good. You're good. He's a good person. She's a good kid. That's a good dog. I'm, I'm pretty good, too. We're all good. But Jesus is making it very clear. No one is good but God alone. In other words, the only ultimate and legitimate standard of goodness is found in the character and nature and person of God alone. Every single time, without fault, when we measure ourselves up against God's standard, his holy law, we realize for ourselves that what Paul quotes in the book of Romans is true. There is no one righteous. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. Jesus wanted this man to understand that no, he was not good. And no, there is nothing that he can do himself to earn or work his way into the kingdom of God. Now at this point, this man doesn't quite understand that yet. He's still looking to the law. And so Jesus continues. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud and honor your father and mother. And, and at the, at the uh, hearing this, this man gets excited, almost as if there's this big feeling of relief coming over his entire body. It's like, phew, thank goodness, Jesus. Let me tell you, I've, I've done those things. I've, I've kept them since I was a little boy. I mean, I've kept them perfectly. I've never murdered anyone. I've never stolen. Definitely have never cheated on anyone. I haven't lied. I'm, I'm good. And you know what? I think he meant it. I actually think that he was sincere in his response. I mean, you and I know that this probably wasn't true. And Jesus certainly knew it. Right. This this man clearly was not in attendance for Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, where, you know, he actually takes the law and the commandments, expands their understanding of what following the law actually looks like. It's about the heart. Right. But yet Jesus doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't stop him and tell him he was wrong. No. He continues because he's still trying to help this man understand what is going on. Picking up in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Isn't it interesting? This this whole dialogue is actually fascinating to me. I mean, think about it. If, if someone were to come up to you today, you're 
friend or coworker or, you know, even some stranger on the street and ask you, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I be saved? Isn't our, you know, normal, immediate response to simply say, well, you got to believe in Jesus. Here, you know, pray this prayer. Ask Jesus to come into your heart. He forgives you. It's, it's as simple as that. Isn't that what we do? I mean, maybe that's even how some of you here have the gospel presented to you. Now, that's not wrong. I, I'm not blaming anyone for telling you this. I mean, we certainly see in the scriptures where it says that believing is part of salvation, right? In Acts 16, 31, it says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. John 20, 31, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing you may have life in his name. In Romans 10, 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you will be saved. So you would think that Jesus would answer this question in the same way. Believe, believe in me. And yet he doesn't. Instead, he says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. So what's going on? Like, why, why did Jesus say that? Is, is Jesus adding to the gospel? Is he saying actually, yes, there is a way to earn salvation. Just do this one thing. Check all, all the boxes off and you're good to go. No, he's, he's actually emphasizing part of the gospel that we often forget. Let's go back uh, to Mark 1.15 and remind ourselves what Jesus said at the start of his ministry. He said this, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. It's this entire passage, Jesus is presenting the full gospel. Let's start with believe. This is the one that we're more familiar with, maybe even more comfortable with. Believe. Though he never explicitly says it, the whole point of this passage is he's showing this guy, you actually cannot do anything to earn or work your way into the kingdom of God. Right? This guy thought he was good. He he thought he kept all the commandments since he was a boy. He thought that he could earn his way into heaven, but Jesus wanted to show him that actually no one can meet the standards of the law. No one is good except God alone. And actually the purpose of the law is to reveal our sin, to show us that we actually need a savior. Later on in verse 27, when the disciples asked Jesus, well, then who can be saved? He says, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. In other words, it's impossible for you to do anything yourself to be saved. Only God is good. Only through the sacrifice of Jesus is it possible. Only by believing in him as Lord and Savior will you have eternal life. Believe. This part we're comfortable with, right? Now let's move on to the one we don't like hearing about as much. Number two, repent. Repent. Jesus is revealing in this passage the very thing that is keeping this man from following him. The very thing that this man needs to repent of. 
Remember, when he lists the commandments, he lists the ones that are horizontal in nature, the ones that deal with our relationship with other people, essentially maybe the easier ones. And the man says, I've done all those things. But you see, which ones are intentionally omitted? The first four, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything or bow down or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord and remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's all the ones that describe our vertical relationship with the Lord. And in Jesus' response to the man, he's exposing the man's heart. He's revealing the fact that this man has fallen short of the law He's identifying the very thing that is keeping this man from wholly loving and worshiping the Lord with all his heart, soul, and mind and marking with a big fat X why this man cannot desperately seek after him. The reason is he's desperately seeking something else. Church, the reality is we cannot desperately seek after Jesus if we're desperately seeking other things above him. Yes, believing in Jesus Christ is required, but by Jesus' response, we see that the heart of the issue in this specific passage to this man is actually a matter of repentance. That's why Jesus says what he does. What this man could not see was that he had a heart problem, a worship problem. He had an idolatry problem. I mean, he had made an idol of his stuff, of his money and possessions. God was not his God. Money was. His wealth had become the most important thing in his life and taken the place where God was supposed to be. It consumed him, controlled him to the point where his thoughts and decisions and life was driven by it. And Jesus knew it. Now, if Jesus would have said to this man in response to his question, just believe in me, knowing that he had this idolatry problem, what would that have done? Well, I think he would have produced a believer with a superficial faith and an incomplete understanding of the gospel. He would have raised up a believer who seemingly worshipped Jesus on the outside while actually worshipping his real God on the inside. Church, we cannot desperately seek after Jesus if we're desperately seeking after other things. Repent and believe. Now, why does that word offend us so much? Repentance. Why why does it feel like a dirty word? Maybe it's been used in a harsh way. You know, maybe you've encountered people screaming, you know, repent, repent for your sins, like on the street, in a way that was devoid of any love. Maybe we're afraid that, you know, it's taking away from God's free gift of grace. You know, it's going to turn into something of a works-based faith. Well, let me get this straight. Repentance is not works. Repentance is is not working for salvation. 
To repent is to change one's mind. It's to feel sorrow and regret for one's past, to turn the other way and to turn toward Jesus. It's something that even Jesus calls us to do as he's presenting the good news, that that's what's required to be his disciple is, is repentance. The reason we don't like this word is, is because we don't want to do it. We don't want anything to call us to give up our little God, right? And we all have them. And the people of Israel certainly did too. If you look back in uh, Ezekiel chapter 14, just quickly, it says this, that the Lord says, When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their idolatry. He says, I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. He says, tell them this, repent, turn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices. You see, the Israelites are guilty of this. The rich young ruler was guilty of this. And if we look at our lives too, we are too. We are people prone to wander, easily distracted, easily satisfied by things that will never satisfy. Remember, you shall have no other gods before me. No one can serve two masters. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle that for someone who is rich, who has an idol of wealth, to enter the kingdom of God. We cannot desperately seek after Jesus if we're desperately seeking other things. Repent and believe. What I love about this encounter is the dynamic between Jesus and the man. I, I genuinely believe that this man was sincere in his question. He genuinely wanted to find the answer and he came humbly to Jesus. And get this, verse 21 says this, says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus is not annoyed or upset or judging or condemning this man. He isn't yelling and screaming, repent in some sort of harsh or angry tone. No, it, it says he looked at him and loved him. He saw him with eyes of compassion. He's saying, you know, my child, I see you. I see your heart. I see your motivations and I love you. But I also see the thing that is killing you. I see the problem. And, and if you just surrender that thing to me, if you just do what I say, then you will find the life that you are so desperately seeking after. I mean, it's almost as if Jesus is the one who's desperate. Jesus is the one desperately pleading. Like, he loves this man so much. He cares so deeply for his soul that he's desperately saying, you want to know how to inherit eternal life? How to, how to enter my kingdom and be saved? How to desperately seek after me? Well, Repent. Turn from your ways. Worship me. Go get rid of that idol. Go get rid of that little God that's been sitting in the throne of your heart and surrender it. 
and believe in me. Come and follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and be my disciple and you will have life. And not just eternal life when you get to heaven, not just life after death, but life here and now, abundant life, the fullness of life, the good life. It's yours. Right? Later on in verse 29, Jesus tells his disciples, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. Yes, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Did you see what that said? In this present age. In this present age. That means now, today, in this lifetime, you will experience the fullness and abundance of life if you seek me. Let me be your Lord and Savior. Repent and believe and come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. That's how the encounter ends. He went away sad. He couldn't do it. Like a, like a doctor who correctly diagnoses a patient and provides him a very possible life-saving cure, Jesus had rightly identified this man's problem and gave him the solution. But the man couldn't do it. He couldn't give it up. In that moment, the rich young ruler weighed two options in his mind. Have life eternal in Jesus or have great wealth and possessions and stuff now. And he decided that his wealth was more valuable than Jesus, more valuable than life. Did he ever end up doing what Jesus told him to do? Did he ever, you know, go back and think about it and end up giving up his idol and become a disciple of Christ? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I hope he finally came to his senses, but we're never given that information. But what you and I can do now is to learn from it. To learn from his mistakes. Because we cannot desperately seek after Jesus if we're desperately seeking after other things. And so I ask you, what are you seeking after? What is the thing that is keeping you from wholeheartedly following Christ, from desperately seeking after him alone. What is it? Are you willing to surrender it? Will you walk away sad or will you repent and believe in the good news? Kind of imagine it like this. I mean, sometimes we need to see it from a, from a different angle. But imagine you are stuck in a dark pit in the ground. Somehow, somewhere you fell in and you can't get yourself out. You've tried everything, but you're in too deep and there's nothing to grab onto and, and you're stuck. 
And day by day, you see glimpses of things that are happening up above. Day by day, you see glimpses of clouds in the sky and the sun shining down and you hear people passing by and they're laughing and they're having fun. They're eating good food and enjoying life. And you, you want to be there. You want that life. And one day, someone peeps their head down into the pit and says, Hey, what's up? You doing okay down there? And you get excited and you get desperate because you might finally get out of there. And you ask the man, well, what do I have to do to get out of here? How, how, how can I get out? And the man simply says, you know, just give me your hands. Let me pull you out. Let me, just give me your hands. All you got to do is let go of those bags that you're holding on to and, 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 and grab my hands and join me. And you look from the look to the right and you look to the left at things that you're holding. Think, what are you going to do? In that moment, you have to decide, is this thing that I'm holding on to really worth staying into this pit? Is it more valuable to me than living life up there where there's joy and light and abundance and hope and salvation? Is it worth it? Am I going to walk away sad and be stuck in this pit? Or am I going to repent and believe the good news of Christ and start living? As we close, I want to challenge you to honestly examine your heart and honestly ask yourself, what am I seeking? Put yourself in the man's shoes. And if Jesus were standing before you today, what would he say to you specifically? Maybe like this man, it actually is, you know, give up your possessions and follow me. Maybe it's your desire to be in a romantic relationship, to get married or have kids. Maybe it's the pressure of achievement or success in your school or your job. Maybe it's your family or your kids. I mean, remember, sometimes we can love the gifts more than the giver. Maybe it's yourself, your needs, your dreams, your reputation. And God is saying, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And the thing about idols is that they can be anything. Anything. Anything that has captured your heart that has become more important to you than God. And if you're having trouble identifying what that is, ask yourself, well, what do I think about the most? What do I spend most of my time doing? What drives my decision making? What are my priorities? What can I not live without? And you might get a better idea of, of what some of those idols are. The first step is identifying it. I encourage you to take time today or this week to wrestle with it and think about it and bring it up with the Lord. I mean, becoming aware of our idols, it's, it's a necessary and great first step. And I will say, you know, the process of rooting out idols and surrendering them will take time and effort. Like we, we can't get into it today, but oftentimes underneath our idols are other issues, 
um, like fears or sin or false understanding of what these things will uh, do for us. And so it might be a longer process. But for now, for today, this week, pray about it. Identify it. Talk to someone about it. I know I'm here, uh, pastors are here, anyone on staff would love to talk with you about that. Search God's word for wisdom and help do something. Don't leave this place doing nothing. Don't leave this place forgetting what we've talked about today. And you know what? If you don't get it perfectly, it's okay. This process of sanctification or addressing heart issues and stripping away our idols, it takes time. But the beautiful part is that even when you fail, even when you mess up, even when you're not desperately seeking him, Jesus is desperately seeking you. He looks at you and loves you. His grace is sufficient He has already made a way for you to experience that abundance of life in him. And if you desire, if you ask, he is faithful to help. He's faithful to help you to repent, to believe, and to seek after him. So church, the question is, what are you seeking after? And will you surrender it to the Lord today and allow him to be the only God in your life. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord, and we thank you for the precious gift of the gospel that you have freely given to us, that we didn't have to work or earn our way, that you paid the price, Lord. Thank you for your grace that covers our sin, for dying on the cross that we might have new life with you, Lord. But we ask you today that you would help us surrender the idols of our heart to you so that we can desperately seek after you and you alone, knowing and trusting in faith that you are more than enough for us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.